taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 6, and on today's podcast we're going to discuss different views of creation, uh, revisiting um, this controversial topic, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. But today's verse comes to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Talking of Christ, he says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Um, we've got uh, got some good topics coming up today. Um, we're going to be discussing that. And I want to just kind of remind people, um, engage with us on the website. Um, send in send in your questions uh, email email wise you can go on the on the website and and send in an email question um, and, and it'll get right to us and we'll we'll answer from there um, but I also want to remind people um, this this topic we're going to be touching on is something that we should probably uh, prepare ourselves to provide grace within this and and realize that these are different views different things um, the essentials of Christianity are not um, are not being not being weighed upon with this with this topic. Um, this topic is something that that uh, you can hold hold other views um, and uh, and still be within Christendom. And I I just ask that our listeners um, listen in, think about these things. It's a, it creates a good discussion uh, to talk about, but also. Um, uh, think about the other people um, as we discuss this. So let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. Doing good. Doing real good. Yeah. So in uh, season four, which was last year, we we talked we we tackled the topic um, in, in the different views of creationism, and uh, so we're going to kind of talk about that today, but. But we're going to slow down and maybe take a, a little deeper deeper run at some of these uh, some of these views and topics. Um, and uh, like I said in the beginning, I want I really want to stress that it's that this is not something that is load bearing on whether you're a Christian or not. Can you kind of maybe give us a little pastoral? Um, encouragement with that yeah absolutely I, I would encourage people uh and, and you said that very well curtis I, I think that we need to have grace in this issue uh yes uh, ultimately at the end of the day um genesis t- tells us that we are here and god did it um and yeah. and that's one of the most important things. And and, and as Gary Habermas said, Christianity really truly rests and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is truly risen from the dead, then everything that he said uh, about himself and everything that God did through him is verified and authenticated uh, through the resurrection. And so ultimately, the resurrection of that's that's the if you're looking at ground zero of Christianity, that's where it's at. Um, but Yes, we need to have a belief in God. Most certainly, I mean, I don't understand. I don't see how Christianity could exist uh, without you know a belief in God. And obviously, we believe that He created everything. But when we look at Genesis one, uh, and really one through well one through three, is particularly even one through eleven more generally, um, we need that. We need to understand, as Curtis said, have grace and humility, and understand that. There may be individuals who hold slightly different viewpoints than you, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're heretics. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not in the camp right. of Christianity. Uh, th- this is where a lot of humility and grace needs to be exhibited. Mm-hmm. So, since we covered the topic, um, 
uh, in season four, we're just going to dump right into, um, I think, you know, in season four, we kind of covered a lot of different views that are all part of it, but we're going to kind of pinpoint in on, on two of the major views. So Brian, you want to go ahead with that? And what are the two main views concerning creation? If we're to break this down into the two primary camps of creation, we, we would take a look at, we would say, call one camp fiat creation, or some people even say de novo, Latin for, uh, f- from a, a new creation, from, 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 from the new, I think is what it means. Uh, in other words, a special act of creation that God has, that he's done. And the opposing view would be an evolutionary model, whether it be the theistic version, which is, this would be what uh, believers in God or, or even Christians would hold to. And this this comes from the BioLagos camp. Wendland Craig has recently made news as he is uh, in this camp as well. Um, but th- this would be the theistic evolutionary camp. Uh, the deist, well, the uh, atheistic or naturalistic evolutionary camp would you say that uh, evolution is a natural process? Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no need for God in it. And this and this is where you'd have like the Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss's, and others uh, who would hold that viewpoint. But but the two generalized camps would be creationism, the de novo from 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 new uh, special act of creation. If you want to call it fiat creationism, that's fine as well. But but that and the creationism and evolution would be the two primary camps that you'd have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So within that first one where it created new, then we could have two different views. The first view being uh, young earth creationist view uh, viewpoint, or uh, like you said, the fiat creationism. What what would that what would that cover? In, in the young earth creationist viewpoint, that, that would essentially be that uh, the, this would go back and take everything literal from the genealogies that you find in numbers and uh, tracing back uh, from certain periods of time uh, back through the genealogies to the time of Adam. And I think it was uh, a guy in the um, 17... Uh, hundreds, I believe it was. Uh, it was uh, James uh, Usher, uh, Usher, Usher, I think is how you, how you say that, Usher, U-S-S-H-E-R, James Usher. Uh, he was the bishop of, uh, uh, an archbishop and a uh, primate of uh, all Ireland. Uh, he basically traced this this date back to October 23rd of 4004, in his opinion. Um, and that was that became a real popular notion um, in the 1700s, and it was even included in some versions of the King James Version, the authorized version of that day and age. Uh, so, now, the, the problem is, is that it's hard putting a date on some areas of uh, of the Old Testament. I mean, even in conservative evangelical circles, you have debate over over um, the dating of uh, the Exodus. Now, I personally hold to an older date. Uh, I th- that would be, uh, you have some people who hold a younger date under Ramses, and then you have the older date uh, with another, with another uh, 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 pharaoh of the time. Uh, Aminotep, Aminotep, I think the second would be the one with the older date. So it's not always simple as as we might think. But anyhow, long story short, he he came up with a date of October twenty third, uh, four thousand four, following along that lines. So young Earth creations, they may not necessarily hold to October twenty third, four thousand four, but they they would say that the universe and the Earth itself is around six thousand years, and that the six days of creation in Genesis one are to be taken as literal twenty four hour periods of time. And you have you have folks like. Uh, Ken Hovind, uh, who's a big um, uh, young earth creationist. Answers in Genesis is probably one of the most prominent uh, young earth creationist uh, viewpoints. And you have uh, you have others who take uh, uh, that view as well. And so that's that's the young earth creationist viewpoint. Hmm. How in the world did he come up with that precise of a date? 
It, that's a good question. I, I think somehow or another he follows the genealogies back. and uh, But see, that's not always simple and cut either, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later on. But um, somehow or another he, he, he devises this plan and comes back to the date of October 23rd, 2004. Seems pretty precise. But let me just say here, just to be fair, not all young earth creationists hold that viewpoint that it has to be 4004. Right. That's right. he's one who popularized it in the 1700s, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that all young earth creationists hold that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, so what is um, what is the gap theory? Gap theory. Uh, this this is one held by uh, several evangelical scholars. This the creationists. Norman Geisler, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, held to gap theory. Uh, this would technically be considered an old Earth perspective, or at least old universe. Uh, but individuals who hold this theory hold that there's a gap of time that happens between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. So where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's an idiom for for all of creation, all the universe. And then they would hold that there's a gap of time that happens between there and verse two, where it says now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then you go into let there be light and things of that nature. So they would hold that there's a gap of time, an indeterminate period of time, between verse 1 and verse 2. So they could say, yeah, the universe may be 14 billion years old. It may very well be that that's the case, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be, even some may even say a 24 literal 24-hour period of time in the remainder of the chapter, but there's a span of time between the first verse and the second verse, and that's how they would come to that. Hmm. That's interesting because, um, you know, it, it seems to me like a lot of, a lot of people want to have it, um, you know, one way or, you know, as you could say, one way or the other kind of deal where <laughs> you have the young, the young earth hold to, um, seven literal days. And then the, so this would kind of be a bridge between that where the first day could be era of time. Right. So fitting into the old earth time period or the old earth uh, creation idea would be how they interpret the word day. Exactly. The word yom. And that's that's a big time question. Now, some Hebrew scholars would say that it uh, that it depends on the context, whether it means a twenty four hour period, or whether it means uh, um, a longer epoch of time, and it can mean both. For instance, we could say like uh, to this day was a busy day, which for me this day was a very busy day. But I'm talking about the twenty four hour period, as opposed to saying the the day of the dinosaurs which means whatever time period that they lived, uh, <laughs> that will determine, that will be dependent on what view of creation you hold on that as well. But uh, whatever time span you hold they lived, the period of time that they, did, that they did live, that would be the day of the dinosaurs. And so mm-hmm. it can be used you know, different ways. But even with that, you've got to be, you've got to be careful because even if it's intended to be understood as a literal 24-hour period of time, it could still be used in an allegorical sense uh, as a symbol. So, for instance, in the book of Revelation, uh, you have a literal seven and a literal eyes, uh, which you, you know Jesus has, what, seven eyes and seven horns or something of that sort. It doesn't mean that it's a literal that he literally has seven eyes, seven horns, is understood to be uh, a metaphor for him being omnipotent and him being omniscient. Uh, so even then you have to be careful because it could be that it's used in a different sense. It, it's, it's, really, it's really a lot more difficult to pinpoint than one would one think. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I was just thinking, you know, like you could say, 
in uh, in Grandpa Chilton's day, or you could say in Brian Chilton's work day today. Yeah, are two different two different understandings of what that word means. Yeah, it's interesting. And I met a, I met a, a a person today who was a World War II veteran. Made me think of my grandpa and. And uh, this is completely off the topic, and and I think about some of the things my my grandpa went through, and in, in in that day and age of the individuals who went through World War II, and um, you know a lot of those a lot of those folks. Again, this is completely off the topic, I know, but you know PTSD and stuff like that wasn't diagnosed, and the stuff that right. these people went through was is far more than we ever could ever think imagine. And, and I honestly believe World War II was probably one of the most important um, wars of of the 20th century because, quite frankly, if, if they didn't win, who knows what the world would have looked like under a Nazi yeah. regime. Yeah. Yeah. So if and we talk what, about... And a- what extent do those people went to, to, uh, to fight against us is, is just blows your mind. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and you know, just the stuff that they saw, the stuff that they, yeah. The the thing is, our memories we can we can hold them for a while, but eventually they surface. And you know, I think about my grandpa as he started having nightmares. Um, he was in he was in the U.S. Navy, uh, fought fought in one of the biggest Pacific battles, Oof. and uh, he was a gunner shooting down kamikazes as the kamikazes were trying to run into the ships. And um, anyhow, just. But you know, using wow. the word "day," we could even talk about the day of the generation of those individuals who went through some tremendously tough times during that period. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. That's interesting. So then, what is the day-age theory then? So the day-age theory uh, holds that the the word "yom" in in these in these different uh, settings, in these different days, is is representative of an indeterminate period of time. And so, instead of I mean, yeah, it's worded the night and the day, but they would they would say that there could be uh, that the day itself could represent a, a a long period of time. Some people even look at this as saying, okay, there's a day and night that may bring the end of a certain age. So you could have had um, uh, the first day could have been a certain age, and then it's ended by night and day, and then that brings forth the second phase of creation or something like that. But in this sense, in this old earth creationist viewpoint, the word yom, the word day, represents a long period of time, a period of time that we just might not even know. And that's not even to say that all the different days have to be the same uh, length of time. It may be the first day was... A billion years old, a billion years, and the second day may be, you know, 48 years or something like that. You know, uh, it just represents that these different days could represent an indeterminate period of time set off by uh, the end of that phase moving into the next. So you could actually say that it would be um, um, different epochs of time? Absolutely. Most certainly. So, not necessarily a rigid um, allotment of time, just a different um, era of what God was doing or moving into at that time? Absolutely. Okay. Most certainly. And so it may be even been the focus, you know, because you have... Well, the first day is let there be light, and God and there was light. God saw the light was good, separated light from the darkness. Uh, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. There was an evening, there was a morning, one day. Okay, so it may have been this period of time covered an indeterminate period of time set off then uh, by that uh, that period. You know, of, of evening and morning, and then one day could represent that 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 phase. Then a second phase. God said, "Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water." God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse of the water above the expanse, and it was so. And then God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. 
and then the third goes, uh, you know, it goes goes on from from there. But it looks at these different days as being phases of time, uh, rather than simply literally a twenty four hour period of time. Hmm. Yeah, and that's so. If we if we kind of look at maybe even that gap theory, you can kind of see how maybe that might. Um, allow for the epoch of time from the very first verse so day one and then it moves into just a you know a 24 hour period then but if it would not be kind of um i guess contradictory in your thinking um because you're you're uh you're looking at it as a epoch of time for day one, and then you're moving into 24-hour periods after that. So, are you talking about the gap, the gap theory? Yeah, yeah, the gap theory. Yep. Yeah, so, so, so the gap would actually come between verses one and two. So, it would be before the day, and the days are even counted in that sense. So, it would be like where you have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then you have a gap of time. So you have creation. Creation came about. Okay, so you had God created the heavens and the earth. You have the creation come about. And then a pause of a period of time we know pause. not. Okay. And, okay. Then, and then it picks up in verse 2. And then the story continues. And you know, and some gap yeah. theorists may may not hold that uh, that they have to necessarily be literally twenty four hour periods from verse two and following, but you know, some gap theorists I believe hold that uh, hold that viewpoint. Mm. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what is um, what is progressive creationism then? Progressive creationism is uh, it's the theory that is generally held by Reasons to Believe. This is Hugh Ross, Jeffers Wearink, um, oh my lord, uh, Fuzz Renaud, that's the one I was trying to think of, uh, and, and many others there. Uh, Ken uh, Samples is the philosopher there with him. Great guy. Just a sweet, sweet, gentle fella. Uh, you, you can't help but love Ken. Um but anyhow, progressive creationists—they're basically old Earth creationists, and they believe that—and uh, this isn't too much unlike some way some Jew, Jewish rabbinics and uh, uh, even some other um, Christian theologians believe that God could have specially made uh, certain uh, prototypes of of uh, species, and from those species develop different breeds of uh, uh, animals. So, for instance, you may have the, the yeah. pr- prototypical dog, uh, whatever that might be. And then from that prototypical dog, you could have different breeds coming from that one. So the the initial oh. prototype was a special act of God created de novo, um, but the breeds that came from that could be God working through the genetic code and and come about and so what you have there it's not really evolution you might have a little micro evolution with adaptations within the the species but you don't have any type of jump from say a monkey to uh, an elephant or something like that or a monkey to a human being you don't have that you have um, the prototypical species and then from there develops different breeds and different types within that same one species. So it allows for yeah. it allows for some the different breeds to come but it doesn't require that there's a special act of creation every time a new breed comes about. Uh, it allows for some flexibility to say God created a special creation and from that special creation developed different different breeds within that general species type. Right. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that at all because you got, you see that in in our day to day. You know, it's not a special, unique creation when we, when we're breeding um, a certain bull with another uh, with another type of of cow. Uh, you can have two different breeds there and come up with a whole different 
type of cow. It's it's still a cow. Um, it's still it's still a bovine, but it's a different. Um, it could be different color. It could have different uh, aspects about it. Um, you know, it. it I, I totally see that in everything that we do um, throughout the world today. Yeah, and and it's and and they would obviously hold the the day age theory uh, of of creationism, uh, the old Earth interpretation, but they but they allow for there to be some variations that happen. And by the way, that's what Darwin observed when he was at the, on the Galapagos Islands. He saw the, the finches, right. and he noticed the changes in the finches' beaks, but the finches did not become eagles. <laughs> they right. didn't become crocodiles. Yeah, they, they, they still they remained... crabs, and then came birds. Yeah, they were still finches at the end of the day. Uh, they they may have changed the shape of their beak, but they didn't turn into a new species. There was just an adaptation right. within that that one species. Right. It's interesting. I see that. I see that in just our our day to day, and I see that in um, you know even even in the sciences today when you're when you're talking, um, they're trying to make hybrid, for example, hybrid corn uh, for. Um, being able to produce uh, ethanol for for mm. our vehicles, um, they also um, use a, a hybrid corn that uh, that produces a larger kernel, or a hybrid corn that has a specific kernel, so you can microwave popcorn it. I mean, oh, it, cool. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of these types of things that I that I totally see, but you don't have corn changing into a cucumber. You know, yeah, um, through that, you know, and and that's and that's where guys like Hugh Ross and Rafaz Rana and Jeff Swearing and others would say, you know, this this is where the problem comes with macroevolution. We don't see this happening. We don't we don't have evidence of this happening. And guys like them and um, um, ah, Meyer, his name left me. Help me out here. Mm-hmm. Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer, yeah. Uh, where he writes books like Darwin's Black Box and uh, things of that yep. nature where uh, he shows that there are obvious problems with uh, with Darwinian evolution. They're still creationists. And so what, one of the things I hope people see is that young Earth creationists and old Earth creationists actually have a lot more in common than what we, uh, what we, than what we first think we have a whole lot more in common the, the the distinction is that how you view the age of the universe and how you view the days of creation yeah, hmm. yeah and i think i think there's i think they're actually kind of look at watching or looking at this list as we're kind of going down through it you can see where where some can actually interact with others you know, just oh, like absolutely. we talked about, you know. It's um, a young it's earth creationist. Young earth creationists can benefit from the work of Hugh Ross as he's opposing uh, evolutionary mm-hmm. viewpoints and uh, and use some of his data, uh, just as old earth creationists can use some of the data that comes out of Answers in Genesis. Um, here again, I mean, this is what we need to understand. We have both sides have a lot more in common with one another than than was the first than is first expected or first thought. Um, right, right. It doesn't have to be such a divided camp, then. Exactly, it, it really doesn't because when we're talking of creationism, uh, the, the goal on both sides is the same to show that. Uh, the evolution, as it's understood, has problems, and the better answer is to say that God worked within creation to bring about uh, certain things. For instance, the Cambrian explosion. This is something that Hugh Ross and uh, Stephen Meyer and many others have mentioned that right. you have, no matter what time period you're looking at, you have a period where there is an explosion of life that comes about, and the right. models set out for evolution cannot really justify that because you can't sustain it. It can't sustain yeah. it. Uh, it's just really a special act that happens uh, during this period. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, and you know, um, 
it's interesting because when we when we talk about these this the the views of creation are kind of sub level you could say to the to the fact that what we're sta- what we're saying in each one of these views is God is not opposed to science and science is not opposed to to a god uh, creating these things and when we look at these models that are out there it it's it's clear that there was that there was a mind behind the the way the process came about absolutely and it goes back to um well like the kalam cosmological argument this is one of the reasons i lo- i love the argument um in the beginning um I uh, see things that begin to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Um, all of those points are justified by scientific data. All of those points right. are justified, and you know this doesn't necessarily say that God is the one who did it, but it does show that whatever did it had to be a non-physical, super, super intelligent, super powerful. Uh, so on and so forth, matches all the traits and qualities of God. Uh, so it has to be a non-physical, spiritual thing. It has to be uh, of, of immense power, immense intelligence, uh, beyond the scope of space and time. And just so happens that that matches the, the biblical description of God. And so you know, I think it's a powerful argument in right. my estimation. Um, but I honestly also love the, the information argument. Um which, which is basically, you know, I kind of lay this out in the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. I don't have it with me right at the moment, but, um, but, but to think that any time, any time you have data, processes, and procedures, there has to be a reasoning behind it. There has to be a mind behind that. Um, if you have information such as like what you find in the DNA, uh, human DNA, there has to be an answer for why you have information so aligned as you do. And even and the gene and the, the wonderful thing about the information argument is that even if it were could be shown that evolution were true, that would not remove God from the equation. It, you'd still have to have a God to explain why there's a process, why there's information, why there's data, and and again, um, God would be the best possible answer for that. The reason I'm a creationist and not an evolutionist is because, quite frankly, I don't think there's good, solid evidence to sh- to, to believe in evolution uh, as it's presented. Okay. I, I really don't, and I, I think the uh, um, I think it's better to say that there is is a, an a being that we know to be God that brought forth the things as we have it. It just so happens that matches a biblical model too. <laughs> So we'll go with this next one. Can you describe theistic evolution and how it differs from uh, naturalistic evolution? Yeah, so so theistic evolution and naturalistic evolution would still be, both hold in a macroevolutionary model. Um, they would still hold that um, evolution brought forth Different animals, different species, different things, and so the the general thrust of the of the argument in both cases are generally speaking the same. The difference is is that the theistic evolution evolutionist would say that God interjected information at certain points to bring about and steer the course of the evolutionary process. So, with naturalistic evolution, you have a, a blind process guiding. The entire thing, a, a blind, non-living thing guiding the whole thing, which I don't know how a blind, long, non-living thing can guide anything. Uh, even use the word guide and create and do all these things, it points to intelligence. So I, yeah. even the language makes no sense if you look at yeah. it from that perspective. Right. And I I, I heard John Lennox made, make this argument. Uh, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he basically said, would you trust a computer if it just happened to, you know, the information just happened to kind of come together without any any direction or any anybody inputting it and just kind of happened to be there? Would you trust it? And and 
the person he was talking to said, well, no. And he said, well, why would you trust your brain then? If it just happened, to, you know? And, and so, and so it, the way he argued it was very pointed. I thought it was great because it's, it's no different. We know as humans that the computer has to have information input into it so it can actually then you know be able to process the things that we're actually asking it to do <laughs> what if 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 a computer needs a program and this is a a a millionth slower than our brain you know really and the information that can be stored in it comparatively to our to our brain why why is it that we we think that we just happen to come out of you know mud <laughs> just, don't, just make, don't get it it makes no sense and you know one, one of the things i was thinking about was it paley who gave the watchmaker argument um i believe it was william paley if, if memory serves but the first thing i thought of is if you saw a, a, a computer just randomly uh start doing things you, my first thought would be who designed it to do that uh yeah there you go. Yeah. Who, who set that information for it to be able to do that? Because we would know that computers can't do that. So there again, you have the information argument saying, you know, showing forth a design. Right. And, you know, honestly, when we look at the design arguments out there and, and you look at just how, how perfectly everything is organized, um, and, and I'll be honest, yeah, I've, been, I've, yeah. I've benefited from... Uh, and that's wh- that's why I don't take a strong stand on either side because I've benefited from some of the things AIG has put forth, and I've benefited mm-hmm. a lot from the stuff that Hugh Ross has put forth. And Hugh Ross in his books, he's talked about how even at the cycle of the the sun's life phase, we're in a perfect sweet spot to allow yep. life, and we're in yep. the perfect part of the galaxy. Or we're the perfect part of the solar system. We're the perfect part of the galaxy. We're the perfect part of of, of the of everything. You know, it's just too perfect, and yep. you don't see this anywhere else from what we can no. observe. And no. um, the the thing that I also find interesting is even the planets themselves. I mean, if you go out on a clear night, yeah, look up and find Jupiter and Venus. Uh, well, not Venus, Jupiter and Saturn, and and you can thank the Lord for those two planets, because we yeah. may think, why did why did God create those two big planets? Well, Jupiter is a, is a, is a, almost as a star that didn't quite make it, and the gravitational pull of Jupiter and Saturn are immense. And so here's the interesting thing: we can thank the Lord for those planets and Uranus and Neptune and the others, because here's what happens: when there are meteors coming in, huge asteroids coming in, those planets pull them into themselves with their gravitational pull to keep them from coming through the Kuiper belt and coming towards us. And it's absolutely amazing. The moon is here to help with the tides. The sun. I mean, where would we be without the sun? Uh, if it wasn't for right. the light of the sun, uh, in Mercury and Venus, they they serve a purpose. Mars serves a purpose. All these planets serve a purpose, and all of it is to allow Earth to have life. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then you got Stephen Meyer talks of you know talks about you know the signature in the cell. You know, yeah. in, in his book, the signature in the cell. So you've got this grand huge immense universe and all of these other galaxies that are all part of it and yet there's this little tiny you can't even see it micro thing that that talks about you know what is that the flagellum it's yeah a, little it's, bacterium it, or something it, like that thing yeah it's a little it's a little flagellum that goes around in a cell that actually um it tells the cell what to do but it, it kind of falls down to that irreducible, irreducible complexities. Yeah, where yeah, that's right. Y- y- you wouldn't have a cell if you didn't have the flagellum. So you wouldn't have. So, like for example, a mousetrap in its most reduced down form is still a mousetrap. If mm-hmm. you take it apart and try to go any lesser than that, you would just have the parts. It wouldn't function. 
Absolutely. Last I heard, interesting. and I read this in one of his books, but I attended a conference that uh, where Hugh Ross was, was speaking, and he, he mentioned a very startling thing. He said that uh, that if, if God exists, then you would expect there to be more and more cosmological constants. Uh, it, it started off with a, a few dozen, and he said now, and this was several years back, he said now it's gone up to 181 cosmological constants out there and the numbers growing every day i don't know what it is now because that was that's even dated material because that was a few years ago um it's even more than just even the solar system there there are four fundamental uh forces of the universe the strong force a strong nuclear force the weak nuclear force the electromagnetic force and uh the gravitational force all four of those forces are so designed that if they were any different by the nth degree, life would be impossible. So, for instance, with gravity, if if gravity uh, of the Earth was was an nth degree more, then nothing more than a bacteria could exist. And if it was an nth degree less, then then everything would start floating off into space. Uh, <laughs> nothing would hold any stability. Everything, I mean, down to these calculations that are mind-numbing, everything is so designed to allow life. And he even makes the argument that, um, you know, you ask, well, why is the space so big? Why is the universe so big? And he even gives, and I can't remember what the reasons were, but he even gave in one of his books or one of his lectures uh, reasons for even holding why the universe would be as big as it is to allow life to exist. And part of that may even be just to allow the wonder, uh, for us to just take wonder in the creation that he's made. Um, but yeah. there's some other reasons he gave, and I can't recall offhand what they were. But but again, the, the case for creationism, in my opinion, is very strong. It's very strong. Yeah. And yeah. Do we, you know, just out of the creation part, if we were to just look at creation, um, the, the pointing to the specific biblical God that we know, right, it doesn't necessarily point to that. But when we look at just like what we talked about a while back, where God has created essentially two different books for us to understand him. One is the the book of the natural creation around us, right? Mm -hmm. And then for the for the more, you know, you could say um, the the revelation of who he is and everything like everything that's part of who what he's done has to be specified or brought closer in, and so that's where we got the written word, right, to help us understand that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it is truly amazing to me when we look at um, the when we look at a seed that we put in the ground and it comes up as, for example, if you put uh, how about this? Uh, your neighbor has dandelions and it blows into your yard. All of a sudden you got a crop of dandelions in your yard. <laughs> that seed, that little seed has has the specifics to get from A to B transporting itself by itself with the wind. It, it opens up an opportunity for the wind to take it. It goes somewhere else. It lands in another another field, another yard, and then it, it actually, um, once it makes soil contact, it goes, it sprouts, it does its thing. But all of that information of what it needs to do is already within that seed. It's Absolutely. already pre-programmed. It didn't have to think about it. And then when it grows up, it becomes a pest in your yard. But <laughs> in the same time, there's medical principles or medical, um, 
you, you can use it medically. I mean, there there's medical benefits to to uh, dandelions, and oh, yeah. um, and certain animals like to eat them. And there's so so it's not just a it's not just a past, but it's it's a past with benefits. <laughs> kind of thing, you could say. Um, well, but, he... but what's crazy is is how it how it does that cycle without having to do anything other than what it's already pre-programmed to do. Well, that makes me think because because we built a house uh, last year. Been it's hard to believe we've been in, in it. Uh, good night. It's been a year and a half now. Come almost two years. Hard to believe, but uh, well, a year and a half. Um, but anyhow, uh, we for the front yard we had to plant grass, and that was such a wild thing to see. I can understand why farmers love farming so much now. Uh, yeah, because we we took the seed. We, a neighbor of ours, he helped us. Uh, he had a tractor and ha- it helped us because we had a lot of rocks in the in the in the ground, and so he was able to pull them up. Bless his heart, bent the one of the 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 rods of the um, that he used to to uh, to get the dirt up to to really plow through, and but because the rocks were so intense, but um, he irrigated it. Uh, I think is is that the term you use irrigating the yard to to get to get the air underneath it. To, uh, that's that's aerating it. Aerating. So, that's that's yeah. that's right. That's right. Yep. Um, yep. But anyhow, we did that. We put fertilizer on the yard, and then we we put out the seed, and we're watering it. And it's amazing to see within a few weeks these little blades of grass yep. coming up. Yep. And we had yep. to actually this past this past year uh, we we put some more fertilizer and more grass seed out and it's starting to thicken up now more than what it was, and it's just amazing yep. to see. You can even see the color changes in them as it's growing, and yep. it's amazing to see that process. And like like you said, Curtis, you're absolutely right. All that information is in that little seed, and it you plant place it in the earth, and and the process develops as God created it. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I mean, you look at an acorn and you go, "That's just an acorn," but then it grows into this huge tree. That that is, I mean, it's like where was that in that in that acorn seed? Where was that? It, it's genetically in there. It's already pre-programmed to do its thing. You don't see that acorn grown into a grapevine, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It, there's there's too much that's within our world. If you slow down and pay attention and and actually really think about and try to come up with these questions um, and, and and answer them legitimately, there's just too much that already show that things were built into a direction absolutely and and an end an end goal um you know and so we come back and look at everything else that we see in creation itself um there are so many things that we all can unite under it doesn't matter if it's old earth young earth um you know those types of views it's still creation. It's still mm-hmm. pointed towards a goal, you know. So it's amazing to me that that God had the insight to do that, but then also have the insight to interject at the right time to bring to bring forth a a a, a place for us to be saved from. A, a a a interjected at the right time, the right place, the right. Uh, the right timing, the right people, the right, all of it together to to bring forth the salvation that we needed. And that's one of the messages I actually brought uh, not long ago, uh, is at a revival and recently where I've been preaching at uh, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. In, in Romans chapter 8, the, while the, the main section, the main the message is talking about the, the justification that comes through Christ, and there's no more condemnation found through Christ. It's interesting to see how God moved in the past, did everything in the past 
to, to, to sufficient to bring about our salvation, works in the present to bring about our salvation, and is going to work in the future to bring that future glorification to us. So God is at work through the plan and process of our salvation. But the same thing with creation. As we see, God is, is directing history to a certain end. And, he, and just as that little seed has the information, he's directing the course of history itself. So it's absolutely, honestly, it's absolutely amazing to consider the design and creation that God has, uh, just, the, just the design he's placed behind everything in creation. And even now, as he's directing the course of history to a culmination, uh, which will be found in Revelation 21 and 22, where there's going to be a brand new heaven and a new earth, and man, as amazing as this creation is, it, I, I can't even fathom what the next will be like. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing when we when we look at <laughs> when we look at the biblical narrative of some of the stuff that we've read throughout Scripture, and it talks about God says to Abraham that you'll have more offspring than than the stars in the sky. And think about that for a minute. You'll have offspring like the stars in the sky, and I and I don't know. I think it might have been Hugh Ross, but I could be wrong. It, somebody within somewhere around there, maybe it was. Uh, oh, I I'm gonna blank out on it. But anyway, they they stated that it's funny because when you do the math of how many stars are in the sky you can do the same with the sand on the sea wow the seashore so it's it's amazing when you think about it how many stars are in the sky you can't even you can't even you can't even imagine the number you know and for for god to God that the God that created the earth and the universe and all of the galaxies and all of that stuff that's so large is also the one that built things so small that we can't even see them within our body mm-hmm. right but he's also the one that actually stops pauses and has a moment in time when he brings salvation to the people that he loves and cares and then that he knows us personally. So all of these things together, if we if we look at all of it together in one picture, it, it, it just blows your mind. It gives us that reverence and awe that we're talked about, that it's talked about in the scriptures. Absolutely. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, because just to look at something simple, um, well, for instance, I took a machine class, machine shop class one time, and, and uh, with those machines we made um, with these different designs. And just to see what goes in a common screw, just to, to make the threads <laughs> in a common screw, I mean, who would have thunk it? <laughs> who would have yeah. ever thought that there's that much that went into making a screw? And um, yeah. just to see these normal objects, there's a lot more design goes into it. But as amazing as it is to consider Looking at creation itself, there's a lot more design that goes into what we know and what we see. I mean, everything's about the creation of God. One. Yeah, Brian. So, well, there you have it, uh, folks. Uh, we kind of covered some more of this topic, and uh, we certainly enjoy doing this. Um, I, I just challenge everybody to... You know, like we said in the beginning, add grace to uh, add grace to a little bit of this, and uh, and think think deeply about things. And uh, it's okay to it's okay to ask uh, your uh, young Earth creation friend and your old Earth creation friend to actually give their viewpoints. <laughs> it'd be Absolutely. good because then under, understanding their topic, yeah. And we need more of these type of discussions uh with people on, on different sides of the camps and to know because at the end of the end of the day i think especially when we're talking about the whole creationist creationist uh viewpoint model i think we honestly have a lot more in common than we do differences i would agree i would agree yep so there you go so we here at bellator christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information.
Hold your own, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Hello, this is Brian Chilton, president of Bellator Christie Ministries. In this topsy-turvy world, Many ministries have found themselves focused on a variety of issues and have thusly watered down their focus and vision of the ministry. We at Bellator Christi want to remain focused on the calling and vision that God has given us since starting back in 2012. That is why we are implementing what we call the three nons of Bellator Christi. The first non is that we are non-denominational. We have members of our team from various denominational backgrounds, including Southern Baptist, Assemblies of God, Evangelical Free, Church of Christ, non-denominational, amid many other backgrounds. At Bellator Christi, we are focused on the core essential doctrines of the Christian faith rather than the somewhat often myopic lens that many denominations use. Secondly, we are non-political. We believe that it is the right of every citizen to be involved in the political endeavors of their community, of their state, and their nation. However, many organizations and ministries have taken up that mantle and focused upon it therein. We at Bellator Christi want to focus on the kingdom of God and the triune God, as we believe that God holds the answers to our nation's woes. This does not mean that we will not occasionally discuss issues and politics that cross over into the philosophical and theological world, but rather we will not endorse any political candidate or party as we are focused on the kingdom of God. Lastly, we are non-Calvinist. We at Bellator Christi hold to the non-Calvinist perspective. While the official position of our ministry is devoted to the Molinist interpretation, we have members of our team from various non-Calvinist mindsets. As such, we, we use non-Calvinistic interpretations in our theology and classical and evidential approaches in our apologetic systems. While we find ourselves needing to narrow our focus, our mission at Bellator Christi remains the same. As we take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, and enter into the arena of ideas.
Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.